Hi, this is Ian Hunter from BlueJayHunter.com, and you're listening to the Jays Journal Podcast with Ari Shapiro. to the Jay's Journal Podcast. I'm your host, Ari Shapiro, and on today's episode, we're going to start off with Ian Hunter, the Blue Jay Hunter himself, talking with me about Jerry Howarth and the legacy that he's left behind with his retirement, followed by a scintillatingly good roundtable comprised of site expert Chris Henderson from the Journal, along with our favorite Dow of Steve from Sportsnet who offer his insights on all things related to the starting rotation, Marcus Stroman, and a whole bunch of other things that have been trending in the news for better and for worse. And then, as if that's not enough for you, we've got our friends from the Collegiate Baseball Scouting Network, Richard Burfer and Dan Segan, will give us their perspectives on prospects John Harris and Sean Reed Foley, the lesser-known prospects, if you will, the lower tier of promise that might be on the horizon for the Toronto Blue Jays. So be sure to stick around to appreciate everything the show has to offer, and hopefully I'll be able to change some of the cynicism that's been in the air for the last week or so. I mean, if we really stop and observe what's happened at the start of spring training, it's pretty much the worst-case scenario for this team. The admission that their star shortstop still has bone spurs in his heels and may not start the season, and then you've got Marcus Stroman and his arbitration comments coupled with Josh Donaldson's most recent admission that the team and player are far apart in finding a long-term contract. So, needless to say, if you listen to all of that in one sitting on Twitter, it's enough to rot your brain and leave you completely and utterly crestfallen. But take heed. We're going to analyze that further. We're going to engage that. We're going to try to understand the genesis of why these things are happening and what implications they have for this upcoming baseball season. So buckle up. Without further ado, and we will get rolling here on the Jays Journal Podcast. Thanks for tuning in. So joining me to start the show tonight, we've got a lot of excitement coming your way. We've got a roundtable on the horizon as well as a spot from the Collegiate Baseball Scouting Network. But first and foremost, in order to talk about what's trending today, I thought there could be no better source than to ask Mr. Ian Hunter from Blue Jay Hunter to drop by and talk with us about his thoughts on the Jerry Howard's retirement. First of all, I want to say, Ian, great having you back on the show. Yeah, thanks for having me, Ari. Good to talk to you. Now, these recent last few days have had their share of intrigue, and of course I'll be getting into that when I do the roundtable later. I'm sure a lot of it has probably come across your desk and you've looked at it and processed it, processed it and realized that this is maybe a little bit overwhelming. I mean, first we find out about the bone spurs and Troy Tulowitzki's heel, then Marcus Stroman takes us into the twilight zone of arbitration, uh, catharsis, and understanding, followed by the announcement that this is the one that really bothered me, Ian, that Jerry Howard will not be doing something that he's been doing for most of our natural lives. I want to start by asking you your thoughts on his announcement and what this means for those of us who grew up with the Blue Jays appreciating what Tom and Jerry were able to do in the city as a duo. 
Yeah, I mean, it was definitely um, it was a surprise. I think some people kind of had an inkling that um, something may be going on with Jerry. I think he was he had some uh, some voice issues last year where he was just wasn't able to recuperate. Um, so there were some rumblings that maybe uh, retirement was on the horizon. But it sounded like he made a fairly uh, a swift decision, and um, I guess he told uh, it sounded like he told the fan just a few weeks ago. So I'm sure they were. They were quite surprised, just as everybody else. But, I mean, um, yeah, Jerry Howarth, he's, you know, the voice of a generation. I mean, I grew up, um, I was aware of Tom Cheek, but he wasn't really in my wheelhouse. Like, whenever I think of the Blue Jays on the radio, I always think of Jerry Howarth because he was always the play-by-play man. He was there for every seminal Blue Jays moment that I can remember, um, especially in 2015 and 2016 where you just, you can kind of close your eyes and you can just picture Jerry Howard making that call. And he was like, you know, the Blue Jays version of Vince Scully. He was just the same, the guy who was there every day, every year, year after year. I think he was, you know, 36 years of, of broadcasting. It's just one of those things you don't really appreciate until um, they, they finally call it quits and you, and you, you realize how long and how much of a voice and how big of a personality they were. And I think that's kind of what everyone felt this past week was that it was 36 years of emotion and, and wonderful memories all wrapped into one. And uh, he's going to be sorely missed, but uh, I listened to his, his farewell show on, on the fan. And uh, one caller said they were just so happy. They got a chance to say thank you to Jerry and, and thank you and to say goodbye because oftentimes uh, fans and listeners don't get the, that opportunity. So it was, it was really, um, if you get a chance, I would definitely go back and listen to it. He was, uh, he had a full two hours with Jeff Blair and, uh, it was, it was great radio and it was good to, uh, it was nice to hear Jerry's, uh, final words, but as he went into retirement, this is something that I think the gravity of the announcement will, will be felt in the weeks to come and, and in honoring someone who's been there pretty much from day one, and, and part of the most indelible memories. And I think we have a tendency to forget what it means to have that, that companion along the way of what Tom and Jerry essentially represented during their career, which is companionship along the journey of the great adventure that is the Toronto Blue Jays. When making that transition, how do you think, Ian, fans will respond to the fact that he's gone and that they have to find a replacement? And not just any replacement, but presumably one that can also then maybe start a journey for the next 36 years. How does the franchise do that? Right. I mean, yeah, you're totally right. In the next opening day when the, when the mic opens and Jerry's not there to say, hello, friends, this is Jerry Howard. It's going to be, it's going to be odd Uh, because personally me, one of my uh, favorite things about, I always listen to the spring training games on uh, MLB.com. And whenever Jerry Howard called the games, like the very first spring training game, I remember. I'm always, I always look forward to hearing him open the mic and, and say that, and it's going to be really weird that not happening this year. Um, so I don't know. There's kind of been some rumors whether it might uh, the the person to take over maybe uh, I don't know Mike Wilner, Dan Shulman, or maybe they kind of rotate the TV crew around. But it it will be strange because. Every moment, every memory, Jerry's always been there. And it's going to be kind of bizarre with him not behind the mic. I think the transition will, 
I, it will take some. It'll take some time because I mean everyone's just. It's been 36 years, and there's going to be people are going to miss Jerry, but I think uh, everyone has really fond memories of him. I'm curious, Ian. This is going to be a season where we have truly a changing of the guard in so many ways, not just in certain figures and, and players that will be moving on or leaving the organization, but there's this real sense that in a year in which Jerry Howarth and Roy Halladay will be honored uh, and, and so much is changing, is there this fear that if the season is uh, fatefully one where they get out of the gate slowly and things are really troublesome by June where no one's even paying attention to this team because they're 20 games under 500, is there a fear that the fans won't return in 2019 and buy into all the marketing efforts to uh, appreciate the next generation that is Guerrero and Bichette? Or do you think there'll be enough fans who will ignore, regardless of what happens this year, and, and stick to their reason to follow their beloved team in 2019? Well, I think the the team has done a good job uh, the last few years of, of drumming up interest in the Blue Jays again. I mean, they are they're in vogue. Um, they are a, a fun team to watch in Canada. And even though they had a subpar product on the field last year, they still were the American League's highest drawing attendance. Now, a predominant amount of those tickets were sold under the pretense that they would be a playoff contender last year. But I still think, even though they finished under 500 last year, I, I still believe they're going to draw pretty well this year. And even if the team is like, as you mentioned, 15 games under 500 by the all-star break, I still feel like the appetite for this team is at an all-time high because you're suddenly seeing uh, prospects like, as you mentioned, Bo Bichette and Vlad Guerrero Jr. And you just run through the names and people, these are household names. Uh, if you rewind maybe five, 10 years ago, most people probably couldn't name two or three of the Blue Jays' top prospects because all the interest was at the big league level. And now there's so much interest in the Jays, coast to coast, not just on the major league team, but in prospects as well. Um, I think regardless of how, how well or how poorly the Blue Jays fare this year, I think this interest has peaked, and I think it's going to stay at that level uh, just because they are, it, they are really a really exciting team. And even if... At the end of the year, if Josh Donaldson walks away, if Jay Happ, Marco Estrada, they're all free agents, there's still some really young, exciting talent in the pipeline that should be in Toronto in the next few years. So there's even if there isn't going to be a contending team on the field, there will be exciting players, so whether that is Josh Donaldson, Vlad Guerrero, or, or Bo Bichette. There's always going to be something to watch in Toronto. Are you personally a big believer in these reclamation projects and in, in the fact that the upside on some of these acquisitions over the off season, whether it's Garcia, whether it's Grychuk, uh, Diaz, Solarte, um, even someone like Granderson at 37, I, I, I have uh, the guilty pleasure of admitting that I was always a big fan of Curtis Granderson. And even though he's a so-called ancient 37 by baseball standards, I'm curious to see what he'll do trying to help and contribute uh, in his own unique way to help this team win. Do you do you really buy into the, the upside stock of some of these players that they just may turn out to have the kind of two, three, four war season that'll make Mark Shapiro and Ross Atkins seem like absolute geniuses for signing them? Yeah, I think there's maybe um, the possibility of maybe one or two of those players hitting um, on a, like a two or three win season. 
I think for the most part, they've kind of, the, for this front office has gone with uh, quantity over quality. They're trying to, as many people have said, they're trying to raise the floor of this team. And I wrote about this a little while ago, but um, by nature of addition by tr- subtraction, I mean, the Blue Jays subtracted Jose Bautista, Darwin Barney, Ryan Goins, um, all these players off the roster, all these guys were had negative wins above replacement seasons last year, and they played the bulk of the games in right field, at shortstop, and second base. And now, I would say at the very least, with the amount of guys that they have, with Solarte and Diaz and um, Everett Grichuk and, and, and Granderson in the outfield, you would have to think at the very least they've got replacement-level players at those positions now. So, I mean, it's not the sexy move. It's not like the... It's not the Giancarlo Stanton trade or it's not a Eric Hosmer signing, but, you know, slowly but surely they're moving the needle a little bit and a little bit and a little bit further. And I think that's the nature of how the AL American League played out last year. The Blue Jays may not need to win more than 85, 86 games to, to put themselves into a, a wildcard position, which is... Um, pretty promising, but to uh, to get back to your initial question, I mean, I don't know if Randall Grichuk is going to be a 30-home-run guy. I don't know if Curtis Granderson is going to hit 20 home runs, but I think, you know, Randall Grichuk is going to do better than Jose Bautista fared last year, so that's really that's the bare minimum that I'm looking for from these guys, and if they can pull that off and then a little bit more, then, then that puts them in an even better position. So if we recognize that we need to see some overachieving. We need to see, we need to see some players um, do what they've done traditionally. Whether that comes from the player that's acquired during the off season who steps in and has a great June, like a Solarte, and the next thing you know, he plays himself into the lineup because of either Travis or or Tulowitzki being unavailable. Which, if you were to give me the Ian Hunter definitive hopeful player that you'd like to see take the step forward in spring training and change the whole paradigm. That one player um, that will go in and win a roster spot, thereby creating a kind of reverberating effect as to whom they have to now consider fielding for the future. Who's your one game changer that might really change the way the Blue Jays have success if he's able to show them he's ready for the majors in in April? Well, I mean, in terms of prospects, I think everyone's uh, really rooting for Anthony Alford. Um, yeah, and he yeah, had for sure. limited, limited play last year, and we kind of got a, a very short glimpse of what he was able to do. But um, that's probably, in terms of prospects, he's the one guy who, um, if he has, I, I don't think he's going to break camp with the Blue Jays, but if he has a really solid April, May, uh, and somebody goes down to injury or Alfred has a really strong first two months of the season. I mean, he could force Blue Jays' hand, and maybe they call him up, and he takes over center field for Kevin Pillar, or perhaps he moves into left field. Um, the one guy to me, and I, I realize he's been hurt a lot. I think he's only played a full season the last three years. But to me, it's Devin Travis. Um, from what I saw from him last May, uh, because he struggled mightily in April, he made a few changes at the plate, and he was, I mean, it's only a one-month sample size, but to me, whenever he's healthy and on the field, he's just the perfect table setter for the Blue Jays. He's yeah. uh, a great mm-hmm. defender. Um, 
he's like the paramount leadoff hitter. Uh, he's just uh, it's something about him. He kind of in a small, small way reminds me a bit of the way he hits with like a Roberto Alomar kind of. It's just the, the it it comes with a huge asterisk though about about those injuries and whether he can stay on the field. And I think Ross Atkins said this offseason that they don't expect him to stay on the field for more than 120 games. But, you know, if you're getting above replacement uh, production from Travis at second base in those 120 games, I'll definitely take that and then throw in, you know, whatever combination of Solarte and Diaz to pick up the rest of uh, the games there. And I think you've got a plus uh, second baseman out there. Especially recognizing, again, as you pointed out, all the intangibles that Travis brings to the lineup. He, he's an extraordinary baseball player in that mold that this team doesn't really have. And so when he's out of the lineup, you don't just feel it from the individual player's contributions, but he's the spark plug, the chemistry. It's, it's almost like the lineup turns into something very ordinary and average. And hopefully his health will dictate what will be a, a successful season, let me close out by asking you your predictions. If I were to ask you how many wins this team you think will finish with, and uh, is this a team that you think will be keeping our imagination lit all the way to September? Give me, give me the official Ian Hunter take on that, on that question. Well, I'll, I'll kind of cheat a little bit. Um, I will, Uh-oh. I looked at fan gra- I looked at Fangraphs projected win totals uh, the other day. It may peg the Blue Jays, at uh, 85 wins, which is only one win behind the the, the uh, LA Angels for the second wild card, and I think that's probably a, a a pretty safe bet for them. I mean, I don't, you know, I mean, it's not a season where everything needs to break right for them to to make it into the playoffs. I feel like, especially with you know the recent trades that the Tampa Bay Rays have made, they've gotten they've taken talent off their roster. Baltimore Orioles aren't exactly going to be that formidable in 2018 either. And I, what you saw from the Minnesota Twins, for example, last year, they beat up on the Tigers, they beat up on the White Sox, and that helped propel them into a playoff spot. So I feel like the Blue Jays, if they can put together solid games against those bottom feeders in the AL East, the Rays and the Orioles, they should be able to make that 84-85 win threshold and if that's the case that could even just be enough to get them into the playoffs so uh yeah to me 84 85 wins i feel like that's a safe bet um if everything breaks right maybe you bump that up to 87 88 but still that's that's a pretty competitive season no matter what uh, no matter what happens at the end if we look earlier if you look at the trade deadline i mean if, the, if this team is in contention come july 31st I mean, they've got the prospect capital to go out and make an impact trade to improve their playoff chances in 2018. And then you, as you mentioned, you look ahead to 2019, and they've got a lot of big contracts coming off the books. Uh, so they could dip into free agency if they wanted to. I don't perceive them doing that because, you know, Mark Shapiro, Ross Atkins, they tend to be on the, uh, they don't they don't sign big money contracts, but with the amount of uh high-end prospects that are coming up through the system, I don't think that's going to matter. I feel like the Bichettes and the Guerrero Juniors and, uh, you know, uh, Brian Baruckis of the world, they're, prob- they're going to be making the impact on the rosters and not, a- and not free agents. So 
it's uh, it, it's it's going to be interesting. I mean, I really this is so it's such an unpredictable year. It's really hard to envision where this team is going to go, but uh, it should be exciting. So uh, I think a lot of people are looking forward to it. And I'm sure we'll have plenty more to talk about, my friend, no doubt. Ian Hunter is a celebrated blogger, writer, in his great work at Sporting News MLB, and you can find him at BlueJayHunter.com and on Twitter at BlueJayHunter. Mr. Hunter, thank you for joining the show. Oh, you're very welcome. Thanks for having me again. All right, so let's get started on this Sunday afternoon roundtable edition of the Jays Journal podcast. With two regulars to the show, you know them well. The first is a regular contributor to Sportsnet, one of the most prolific bloggers you'll find on all things Toronto Blue Jays. Dow of Steve joins us. Dow, thanks for coming back on the show. Thanks, Ari. Good to be back. And of course, no roundtable these days will be complete without having the site expert, one of the site experts at Jays Journal. He is one of the top writers of all things Toronto Blue Jays across North America. Chris Henderson is back on the show. Chris, hello there. My pleasure to be back, Ari. Great to, great to be chatting with you, gentlemen. Now, I don't want to beat a dead horse because it's been in the news now for three or four days, his, his negative response to the arbitration process. There's so much really to absorb here, but I want to start with you, Chris. When you think about the last few days involving Marcus Stroman, the way the organization treated him in taking him to arbitration, the fact that he clearly wasn't happy and voiced his displeasure yet again, which I think a lot of fans, quite frankly, are really getting tired of because it seems like whether it was commenting on Ryan Gones or commenting on the future of the team or his own contract status, it's clear that Marcus Stroman marches to the beat of his own drum. It's also clear that the organization knows that in doing damage control, they have to spin it positively, and they have by saying that they are considering some kind of contract to cover him during these arbitration years. What's your whole take on this? When you, when you look at this, what would you like to see play out knowing that the last thing Toronto Blue Jays fans need is a, is a distraction during spring training? We've seen enough of those. Yeah, you know, there's a few different sides of this for me. Um, you know, first of all, I was... I question why, you know, Marcus Stroman to me is one of the most, arguably the, one of the most valuable assets the Blue Jays have. So, you know, going to arbitration for a second consecutive year over a pretty minimal amount of money, you, you can question that. And I understand the trickle-down effect. You know, he's got two more goes through arbitration. So if you give an extra 400000 this year, it turns into more the year after. I understand that there's a trickle-down effect. But uh, when you're talking about a foundational piece, uh, or at least a potential foundational piece like Stroman, I hate to see it get to that point where there's a potential for for uh, arguments. That said, um, I, it's unfortunate that uh, he's one of my favorite players. He absolutely is. But it's unfortunate that he feels the need to go public with so many feelings. And I think most of the time that's an endearing quality about him. But it's almost uh, once in a while I wish he had an extra layer of filter before he actually hit that post button to stop and think and go, okay, is this smart even for my own business sense? Because, uh, you know, it'd be, it's a shame if he hurts his own value both to the team and his own brand by doing things like this. Um, it, obviously, it seems like it's water under the bridge now, but and I'm glad to see that, but uh, you just don't want to see it keep continuing and become a trend even more than it already has. My sense on it is, you know, uh, these guys uh, are competitive. Um, you know, we, we love Marcus Stroman when he's uh, fist pumping and on his way off the field. Uh, you know, I mean, the, for a guy who's, whose job is to be ultra competitive, 
I think losing the losing the arbitration hearing is something that you know he's gonna react to and and but uh, I ultimately don't think it's that big a deal um I, I, and I know that it's being sort of built into something that's part of a an ongoing uh, a, 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 an ongoing trend uh, uh you know sort of a part of the narrative of of who he is and and what he does and um i i think i tweeted at some point last year you know i wouldn't ch- change anything about marcus stroman and i i still kind of feel that way you know like as I, I i don't think that this was uh that big a deal it it was it was ill advised for sure um but you know i i think that uh at some point, Marcus Stroman probably is going to get the filter, and then he's going to be that much less interesting for us. So, uh, <laughs> so, so you know, I, I, I'm not going to spend a ton of time uh, um, sort of beating him down on this. Are you a big believer in the school of thought that when you have a star player, and the, he unquestionably is a star player, I think this this whole discussion would be very different if he were a utility player or someone that the team didn't rely on as heavily as they have. What do you think now when you consider that with players like that, doesn't it really just come down to accepting them for what they are or making an executive decision, whether or not they reflect the philosophy of the team. And the reason I'm asking this is because if Marcus Stroman were a different character, let's say still the same result, still a six war player, still someone who finished eighth in Cy, Cy Young award voting still someone that fans clearly for the most part reach out to and relate to and enjoy because he is a great success story in a sport that is primarily filled with archetypes that don't resemble what he is. I mean, he's overcome a lot of adversity to get to this point. Should the Blue Jays reach that level where they say to themselves, we either make him a part of the future by giving him a contract and demonstrate that he will be part of a, a new age or new era of young players or are they just buying time to maybe decide whether or not he fits in and then ultimately maybe consider pulling a trade? I think that uh, that this front office that the Blue Jays have uh, are going to maximize uh, every uh, every bit of the uh, of the CBA that um, uh, that they have access to in order to you know keep the salaries where they need to be. Uh, I don't think that they are a team that necessarily uh, would jump out. Uh, having said that, uh, um, uh, Cleveland did at times go and, and try and sign some guys for, for under-market deals. And I, I don't get the sense that uh, Marcus Stroman is a guy who's going to trade off uh, a couple of his future years um, and and give uh, the Blue Jays uh, some sort of a deal in order to get uh, a guarantee. I, I think mm-hmm. that Stroman is uh, probably a, a guy, as much as he didn't like the outcome in this instance, is one who's probably, uh, again, that competitiveness uh, that you know he he's going to be willing to bet on himself and and uh, to push. Um, push arbitration as far as it needs to go. Uh, you know, I mean, I, I do think it would be uh, smart of the Blue Jays to to take a look at at, um, at locking Stroman up. I, I, I also think that his 
his season last year uh, had very good outcomes. The season before, a little bit less so, but some of the the, the sort of background um, uh, analytics on, on both seasons looked pretty similar. So I think this is kind of the 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 third season that the the Blue Jays are going to want to look at in order to see you know which uh, which version is the 2016 or 2017 version of uh, Stroman the one that they should expect going forward. Is there a legitimate concern that maybe that's exactly the apprehension that after the significantly impressive year that he had last year, I mean, if you really analyze the numbers, his ground ball rate I think led the league. His ability to pitch in pressure situations was in the top ten. This is a this is obviously an evolving talent. So, is there a concern that maybe he might take a step backwards? And are you worried that by settling for an arbitration contract with this kind of odor to it, that it could have a negative impact on on his efforts? Maybe just by trying too hard and feeling that he's not loved. You know, I don't I don't know if that's uh, something to need to spend a bunch of time worrying about. I I think it's very possible that he takes a small step back just because he had such a great year last year. Um, I, you know, following him on social media and all that sort of thing, he's obviously incredibly driven. um, And I don't think there's going to be any question about whether or not he's putting in the work and the time and whether or not he's feeling motivated. Um, It's just whether, whether or not he's feeling motivated for the right uh, reasons or despite people or whatever the case may be, we can still benefit from that. Whether, whatever his motivation is, we can still benefit for three more seasons. So even if for some reason the club motivates him to spite, there's still lots of value to be gained. <laughs> well, this is going to be one of the, I mean, there'll be many narratives, many storylines to follow in this year's Blue Jays team. This to me will be right at the top because I, I can see it ending really, really poorly or really, really, um, delightfully for fans where he might go out and even impress his staunchest critics by uh, charting his own path. And, and he's done that pretty much from the beginning with his, you know, HDMH branding, the fact that he's taken the Jose Bautista trail of self-advertising when clearly the organization has preferred, for whatever reasons, to embrace an Aaron Sanchez. My question now is, after looking back at the rift between him and Sanchez. Their friendship ended kind of in the in the spotlight. And then we look at some of the critical comments he's made in the past and his tendencies for using that bulldog, um, some would just say arrogant mentality against other teams. Am I wrong in thinking that, uh, Dow, am I wrong in thinking that that's something that I, that I actually enjoy and should enjoy because the Blue Jays have never really had that kind of player who's willing to be a rabble-rouser and can back up all of his hyperbole, so to speak? Well, I mean, those those players are entertaining. They're fun. And, and you know, they definitely walk a line. And, and you know, sometimes you don't know whether or not if, uh, the, uh, if the bravado um, is always well-earned with some of those types of players. But, you know, I, I, I mean... What uh, Stroman did last year, uh, for sure, is something he, he has every right to to strut and and preen and pose. And you know, again, it, it's a it's a game that's played in a big field. And you know, I, I don't think that the 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 energy and fist bumps uh, or, or um, uh, fist pumps that you that you see these guys doing, um, I don't, I don't think that that detracts, 
from the from the game really at all. So uh, you know, I I I think that there's uh, there's great energy that comes out of that. Um, you know, I, I don't know whether or not if that leads to any new success or or what have you, but it makes the game a little more fun. Yeah, and you know, I I think about as far as a bravado type of player that the Blue Jays have enjoyed in the last decade or so, and obviously Jose Batista fits that mold. And and uh, just chatting with my friends that that cheer for rival teams, uh, they hate them, and I have always enjoyed that. It's kind of like uh, being a Toronto Maple Leafs fan uh, in the 2000s and having Darcy Tucker on your team. I used to, or Ty Domi, I used to just love watching my brother hate those guys. And uh, when they're good and they're productive players, you know, whether it's a Batista or a Stroman, it, it makes it that much more fun as long as they're on your team. <laughs> well, and I think it just goes straight to their affiliation. If they're, if Marcus Stroman is pitching in Yankee pinstripes, um, I think the entire city of Toronto will come to load him. Whereas when we oh, get yeah. a player of that caliber and that nature and we put him on our team, suddenly we forgive, we forget, and we, we embrace. And that's a, a tradition we started back in those early 90s glory years with uh, the acquisitions of various different mercenaries and villains that we've talked about. You know, I, I hated Jack Morris with a passion until he ended up pitching for my team. I absolutely hated Dave Stewart and Ricky Henderson and Paul Molitor and David Cohn and all those players ended up playing for my team. So I think we can agree it's a matter of perspective. And speaking of perspective, I want to turn our attention to uh, this next, uh, next subject that we can tackle, which is the acquisition of Jamie Garcia. And whether or not you both believe that by creating versatility in the bullpen and having Joe Biagini back where he rightfully deserves to be, that this might end up just being the sleeper move that could potentially make the Blue Jays a playoff team. What do you think about that, Dow? Well, I, I like the Garcia signing more uh, with, with every sort of pass that I do on it. Um, I think I, I put out there that just sort of instinctively I, I would have had Garcia behind Kashner but I think that's probably just the instinct to to uh, default towards pitchers who have more velocity. Um, but as you start to look at some of the numbers uh, that Garcia has had over the last couple of years, I, I think that there's still uh, legitimately a, a pitcher um, a pitcher who might be better than a, a number five uh, there. He could be. Um, he could be something uh, along the lines of a left-handed uh, Marco Estrada. So I, I'm really looking forward to, to seeing how that plays out. Uh, as for Biagini, um, I wonder whether or not if they have to to make a decision on him and either put him uh, in Buffalo and, and let him be the next guy up and, and get, you know, 20 or so starts sort of just by – process of elimination or if they want to put him back in the bullpen um i i tend to default towards giving guys the opportunity if you think that they're a starting pitcher then giving them the opportunity to to get the start mm -hmm. uh but be a genie one of the one of my observations on him is that you know when he's when he's standing up straight when he is pushing towards um uh home plate uh, in his delivery, then he, he's going well. But I found that later in games as a starter, he would start to fall off the uh, the mound uh, as he was pitching. So I just wonder whether or not if um, if he still has the – or if he does have the stamina in order to, uh, to be a pitcher or if he wouldn't be better off 
taking an inning or two or maybe uh, per- perhaps being a 100-inning reliever, which I would love to see, but I've probably given up on that dream at this point. Yeah, and for me, I think, uh, you know, I tend to, to lean the same way, Dow. I, I think he, I think Biagini ends up, obviously he'd be, selfishly, I'd like to see him in the bullpen, um, but I think that the Blue Jays, I, if I was going to guess, I would expect that he'll start as a six-man in Buffalo, and if the team is, you know, later in the season, if they find a need that they're in the playoff race and they have a need in the bullpen, I wouldn't be surprised that they shifted focus. But I just kind of think, you know, with Osuna, Tapera, Barnes, uh, you know, some of the other minor league contracts that they've taken a chance on, like John Axford or uh, Albuquerque, they've got some other lefties in there in the mix now with Breslow and, uh, you know, younger guys like uh, Tim Meza or Matt Germany. I think there's enough arms that, they can start the season without Biagini in the bullpen and be okay and uh, reassess that as the season goes. If they're in, in the mix, then maybe they want to think about adding them to the bullpen to strengthen that if, if the need calls for it. Or, and who knows, by then they may need that extra arm in the rotation. Uh, it's hard to say. Um, but uh, I, do, I do like the idea of him in the bullpen. As for Garcia, I feel the same way as well. Um, you know, looking back and you look at the early part of his career, he really was kind of like an ace potential guy um, early on in his career in St. Louis. And obviously that profile's changed a little bit, but uh, I agree with you, Dow. I think he has the potential to be much better than a number five starter. And uh, if we have a group like this that could have the kind of health that they enjoyed in 2016, it could be a, 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 a rotation that really surprises people and, and gets underestimated. And uh, what what a sad, cruel irony, isn't it, that uh, Joe Biagini might face the prospect of going down to Buffalo when all he ever did from day one as a Toronto Blue Jays relief pitcher was get the job done and become respected, highly respected for it. And then the organization asked him to step in and start um, in a very, very uh, unpredictable way. I mean, there was always talk about it in spring training, but there was a legitimate hope there. I think you'll agree that Francisco Liriano would have been the fifth starter and Biagini would have just stayed in the pen. Is, do we give any credence to the fact that by trying to turn him into a starter and then putting him back in the pen, it could have done something to his to both his headspace and his, his mechanics? I mean, I, I find it hard to believe that the Blue Jays would actually bring a pitcher like this who was so effective for them two years ago uh, into the minors to start the year. I would hate to uh, attempt to even speculate as to what's happening in Joe Biagini's headspace. Um, <laughs> you know, uh, I, I think he's... He's let us know that that is a bit of a fantasy land, and and but uh, you know I I I don't know that um, that what they've uh, what they've done is necessarily messed him up, and and I think that that the comments that you hear back from him, he does seem like a like a pretty good team player on you know both last year the comments that he made when he got sent down and. And uh, I think uh, there was a comment that was made somewhere uh, in the last week. And it, it does seem like he's a pretty good sport about this. Now, you know, it's going to think spending your your time going around to Scranton and Rochester and, and you know, what have you when you should have been uh, flying charters to big league cities. But I... I think, you know, Joe Biagini, I mean, he is, well, we don't know what he is at this point. And until he can more clearly uh, set that uh, for us and, and, and his performance uh, more clearly 
portrays what he is, then I think that he is unfortunately going to be, you know, on that shuttle or um, sort of just on the, on the fringes of the, uh, the roster. Yeah. And for me, I'm willing to bet that as long as, you know, to me, if I'm a, if I'm a big league pitcher and I have the opportunity to go and become a starter, I'd be willing to put some time into AAA if that meant that my career trajectory changed into being a starting pitcher because his earning potential is going to go up and all those sort of things. Where I don't think, what I think they want to be careful with is you don't want to see him yo-yoing back and forth. Um, last year was a weird circumstance where he had to build up innings while while on the big league team. So I think uh, 2018 represents a clean slate for him. And if that means that he starts the year in Buffalo and he's a starting pitcher until he proves otherwise – and then moves to the bullpen, and that's the end of the conversation. Then that's great. And or if he sticks as a starter, that's great too. But um, I just, I you know, looking at guys like uh, Brandon Morrow or Neftali Police, you don't want to see people getting yo-yoed back and forth and and have that mess with them. Um, there was the other guy, Daniel Bard, was another one. You um, just said that's proven to be a bit of a recipe for disaster. So I think you figure out what you've got with them for the year, and now that you've got enough depth to allow that luxury, then, then you do that. And uh, worst-case scenario, you've got a decent reliever, and uh, that's not a bad thing. No, it's definitely not. And one that can go around, I might, I might add, bragging that he was on The Tonight Show. I mean, he, he's right. an extraordinary human being, that Joe Biagini, and I think he can only help the Blue Jays on so many fronts. Obviously, they need him to be effective as a pitcher, but I love his intangibles. I love the way he endears himself to the fans and, and anyone who's willing to pay attention to this Blue Jays team. So now that Garcia is in the mix, obviously, and the rotation is for all intents and purposes, it's set. I just realized that this truly is the most unpredictable spring training experience I've ever encountered in my life. I'm looking at this roster and I'm being asked repeatedly by many other people to do a win projection or two to try to give some kind of finish, uh, you know, uh, analysis. And I'm having a hard time guys, because it seems like every single position is some kind of reclamation adventure. You look at the outfield, you look at the infield, you look at the state of the health of this team. So much can go right. And also this could be disastrous, but will it be as disastrous or anywhere near as disastrous as last year? Are the Blue Jays finding themselves now in a position where by upgrading depth, they can guarantee themselves what I think we can agree at worst might be a 500 year, but also one that has enormous upside. What do you think about that, Dow? Well, I think that this is a team that where the error bars are are, are pretty uh, are pretty broad. Um, trying to figure out, you know, uh, maybe they're an 83 win team, but that they could just as easily be a, a 70 uh, win team this season, depending on. Uh, how things play out. The, I think that they're going to have to figure out a way to score runs. And, and I think that's the thing that to me is the biggest question. Um, even if we have some sort of a better sense of what the outfield is supposed to look like uh, in in April, uh, to me, I, I think that it's going to change um, uh, significantly. Um, or, or it has the potential to be uh, an outfield that looks very different at very uh, at, at various uh, times during the season. So, um, and you know, you would like to think that the 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 raise the floor um, uh, sort of 
process that they've been on uh, over the last uh, over the last few months has has made sure that they won't totally fall off the face of the earth. Um, I think that that potential is still there, and and I'm not sure that there's a ton of potential for uh, this team to be a team that wins in the high 90s. But I I, I really don't have a clear sense um, on where. Uh, where this team goes. There's just uh, so many question marks uh, up and down uh, the entire roster, for better or for worse. I'm, and I totally agree with both of you guys. I think the one key, and you, you mentioned it right off with your question there, Ari, is that the depth is much better. Um, so I would expect that at worst, if, if I was to make a prediction, I, I wouldn't want to pick a number, but if I would expect that at worst they're a 500 team, I don't think they're going to be a 95-win team at all either. Um, but I would expect that they're going to be at least in the 500 range, which is better than last year. But I also think about, um, I think it was the 2012 season, uh, you know, the year that they acquired all the Marlins and R.A. Dickey and went into that season with so much hype and expecting to be the, you know, Vegas had them as the top team in the odds and they ended up stinking out the joint. I think they had 76 wins or 72 wins that season. So uh, predicting what's going to happen in a big league baseball season is a fool's game. Uh, and, but I do like the depth and I think that there's, uh, I think there's a lot more reason to be optimistic this year than there was last. Well, it's funny. You look at the things that an organization looks at to add and I pay more attention to what they removed, what they subtracted. And I had this uh, little clever tweet. And, you know, we do love our clever tweets. I know Dow loves his clever tweets, but I really like getting in a clever one where people kind of look at it and realize that it's not meant to be uh, criticism or mockery, but I'm trying to highlight certain realities. For example, the Blue Jays subtracted Ryan Gones, Darwin Barney, Miguel Montero, Jose Bautista, and Francisco Liriano, which was a cumulative minus 3.3 war, which is such an astonishing number because think about it. Those five players combined to be an absolute black hole of productivity for the team all year. Meanwhile, the players that they acquired, Jan Hervis Solarte, Diaz, Grychuk, Granderson, and Garcia, are a combined positive 4.7 war. Now, at the risk of gushing like a sabermetrics nerd, and getting half my fans alienated that I'm referring to a statistic that not even everyone universally embraces. Chris, can we embrace universally the notion that by improving the depth this significantly, we, we, we stand the chance to be pleasantly surprised as opposed to be profoundly disappointed? Because I don't think the disappointment has left. I think there'll be a lot of heavy-hearted Jays fans going into this year saying, I'm not really expecting anything, and I'm trying to watch the Leafs and Raptors when I can. But there are also going to be some that will say, you know what? Let sleeping dogs rest like that because they will wake up. And if this team has a lot of things going right for them, especially in April and May, they could end up being one of these really surprise uh, off-the-radar teams that everyone had written off uh, weeks ago. There's one thing that I've learned about Toronto sports fans and even Canadian sports fans is they like winners. And, uh, you know, I think it's evidenced by the fact that there's still tickets available for the opening day game against the Yankees that Blue Jays fans um, aren't feeling as optimistic this year as they were last year. Um, but in the era of that second wild card, uh, it's very easy to paint a narrative where the team is in the running. And I think, you know, even if they're in that 500 range or if they're a few games above 500, you talk about that difference in war. If they do win seven or eight more games uh, than they did last year, then you're talking about an 83-84 win team. And that's a team that's that's challenging for that second wild card spot. So it may take a few months to to gain that kind of 
excitement and stuff back around this Blue Jays team, especially with some so many unknown players. You know, if you ask the casual baseball fan who Alexis Diaz or Randall Grichuk is, they probably wouldn't know, but uh, they will know soon. And I think that um, just give the Blue Jays a few months, and if they have a better start than they did last year, the fan base will will get excited again once they see if the standings are are the way that I think they're going to be. Yeah, I think it's interesting that you say the start because the start has been something that's been on my mind here for the past uh, few weeks. And, you know, uh, they they have seemed to have been uh, slow starters in most seasons over the last few years uh, and ended up uh, chasing um, even in their season where they won the 93 games. Uh, they they were still uh, you know under 500 at the uh, at at the point where they were making the David Price and Tulowitzki trades. So uh, I, I I do think that um, fans are going to need to see it. Uh, they're going to need to um, uh, to feel a reason to to get excited. And uh, so I think that where this team stands in June is going to go a long ways towards. Uh, uh, figuring out uh, the extent to which they they get embraced. Let's change gears and look at reasons for why we would get excited and believe that this team is worth its salt. Because we know that uh, in baseball, it's how you finish. And with the Toronto Blue Jays, starts and finishes have always left a lot of fans crestfallen and heartbroken. There have been some horrible finishes in the history that I don't need to mention because the three of us know exactly what I'm alluding to. And of course, there are some that have surprised fans. Um, will we be surprised by certain spring training hopefuls? I want to start with you, Dow. Give me the players, maybe a couple of players that you're looking at intensively this spring training, scrutinizing them to see whether or not they can make this club because by doing so you believe it will be the difference between being a competitive team or, or, or falling out of the race. Yeah. I mean, uh, certainly I think we're going to be scrutinizing Aaron Sanchez to see whether or not if he comes back and is, you know, uh, along the lines of an American league ERA champ, or is he going to be someone who doesn't necessarily, uh, get 20, 25 or 30 starts this year. Uh, so that, that's going to be interesting. I, I, I do uh, tend to lean towards believing that this is going to be a, a, a nice year and a good return for, uh, for Aaron Sanchez. And in terms of on the offensive side, the, the person who I'm really keeping an eye on is Teofster Hernandez. Um, I feel like the, the, there is some really interesting upside uh, and for a team that's going to need offense, um, you know, he, he, he doesn't walk enough. He strikes out too much. Um, but if either of those are, are things that he can, uh, that he can adjust or adapt, uh, you know, the, the bat has power in place. And I think that he could be a really interesting uh, piece in the middle of the, uh, in the middle of this lineup. Yeah, and for me, there's there's a few different situations. I feel like this team is mostly, you know, if I'm looking at it on paper, there's not as many spring battles as a lot of a lot of years, but there's a few that really interest me. Um, I think the left-handers in the bullpen, um, it's an interesting spot. You know, you've got Aaron Loop coming back, who I've never trusted, and really, I've, every time I've cringed for years watching him come in. 
Um, but he's, you know, he's back and he had a much better year last year. But I also think guys like Tim Meza and Matt Germandy will challenge. They got brought in Craig Breslow. So I'm curious to see what happens with that little battle in the, in the spring. Um, and I also, today, today I published an article and it was kind of a hypothetical, but I think it's something that could actually play out. I, I'll be really interested to see both what Solarte and Aled Mestias uh, are looking like this spring and, and early on in the season, especially if Troy Tulowitzki can't stay healthy. Uh, and what I was talking about in my article today was, you know, what if one of those guys or both of those guys and Devin Travis, like if those three are all playing at a, a level where you don't want to take them up the lineup, is there a potential scenario where Troy Tulowitzki, um, you know, where you're putting him in as a starter because because he, you, you feel like you have to, not because you should. Um, so I'll be very interested to see um, the health of Devin Travis and Troy Tulowitzki and what kind of production we're going to get out of those new middle infielders. Um, that'll be the thing that I'll be keeping my eye on. And, of course, it didn't get off to a great start with all the news about the bone spurs, but I don't think any of us were really that surprised. There's just a there's a hex over Troy, and it's a shame because uh, of all the moves and of all the intrigue over the last couple of years, when he came to town, I think, all oh, you know, let's be honest, guys, it was, it was a taste of, of a future Hall of Famer now joining your ranks. And, of course, the, the sadness about this all is now that his chances of making the Hall have been completely uh, plundered by being on the American League team with the Blue Jays. It just hasn't worked out. Um, this is why I think I can agree with the both of you as per your picks. I, I myself am hoping that Anthony Alford can add the, the level of speed and athleticism that this team is really lacking. I know they picked up some of it with some of the players they picked up, especially with Solarte and Diaz, but I think, and Grychuk in particular, I think so many people underestimate what he'll bring to the table defensively. So there are a lot of reasons to smile and think that, hey, after all was said and done, the Blue Jays, they pulled it off. They had a, a semi-decent, some would argue, really productive offseason. But it's been a ridiculous offseason, and I want to get your points of view on what's been talked about and mulled over on every channel and in every streaming service imaginable, which is baseball collusion. Do you guys, starting with you, Chris, do you buy into this notion that there really is some form of collusion, knowing that amidst all of the lack of activity, you Darvish and Eric Hosmer just ended up with real classic old school contracts that look like they could have been signed last year? So, so what's your take on this? Is there really something foul in the air, or will eventually the market right itself? It just needed a bit of a correction. I don't think there was anything foul in the air per se. I, you know, Ross Atkins talked about it as a pitch talks event a few weeks ago, and he just said the era of paying for for guys in their you know after their peak years is over. And I think it's just an evolution that we've watched in baseball that's kind of come to a head at a time that uh, obviously the Players Association and the, and the players and the agents are not happy about. But, um, you know, I think the biggest evolution is that we're, there's going to be an adjustment in the CBA uh, when that comes due, and hopefully that won't result in any kind of work stoppage. But it's, uh, it's just an evolution in the game. And, uh, you know, we never thought we would talk about $400 million contracts, but that's a real thing that's going to be talked about next off season. And that's a huge factor as well. So I understand the more that you look at it, the more that you examine the scenarios that the Yankees or the Dodgers or, or these really big players are in and how they're trying to set them out, themselves up for next off season. It's just kind of a perfect storm in my mind. 
But um, I think next year, if there really was a collusion thing or, you know, if that's actually a real thing, we'll see it next off season when, uh, when all these huge names have come, uh, are available on the market and all these other teams have reset their, their tax uh, penalties and that sort of thing. We'll, we'll learn more that way next year, but I don't think it's real. Yeah, I, I would tend to concur. I mean, I, I do think that this is just sort of the, the logical endpoint of, of, the past 15 years of uh, statistical analysis and the popularization of that. And, and, you know, I, I think over the last 15 years, we, we championed the, the front offices that were uh, I, taking a, a much more rational and, and, and analytical approach. Um, now we're basically at a point where there are no old school uh, um old school front offices left. And so, uh, you know, I, I think that that's a piece of it. Uh, I think that the luxury tax uh, at this point has become a cap for enough of the teams that, uh, that there just wasn't a lot of money out there to be spent. Um, and mind you, you can look at the, the, the sport and you can look at MLB writ large and say that there's all sorts of money out there, but in terms of the teams that would potentially be spending, they are in a good stead and don't need to go out and add uh, some of the free agents that were out there on the market. They're all conscious of what's coming. Um, And I think with uh, so many of the teams who are sort of in that middle pack, like the Blue Jays are, uh, I get the sense that that budgets were pretty stretched to begin with and people wanted to get to the end of their arbitration processes before they started to make commitments to, to players. Um, you know, uh, understanding where, uh, where your payroll is going to be in total uh, is important to figure out, you know, whether or not if you can, if you can fit another contract in there. I think the, the one last thing that I would say, though, about this uh, about this off season is that I think what it tells us to some extent is that uh, is that there isn't the scarcity of baseball talent that people might have thought there was before, and that being the case, I think that the uh, the next step is. Uh, is expansion for MLB and and to pick up on on what was said here in terms of what the labor situation is going to look like in the next couple of years. I think it can't help but uh, wind up in some sort of a, a, either a lockout or a walkout. Um, and the one thing that I could see potentially heading that off is expansion, something that uh, that broadens the pool of jobs available and and adds some. Some added money into the game that way. Those are those are truly wonderful points because it's almost as though we're acknowledging that no, there really isn't collusion, but clearly the owners' decisions are nudging the players towards what will be a fait accompli and the worst possible scenario for baseball fans, which is a strike. And there are many people that I know that believe that it's heading that way by virtue of their lack of confidence in Tony Clark and how he was appointed, right? And and how he took over for, for uh, Michael Weiner and found himself in over his head. Because clearly this was not a good deal for the players. And so the fear becomes the owners recognize that 
and as you mentioned, hopefully expansion will be a win-win scenario for everyone. The billionaires will be happy, the millionaires will be great, and those of us, you know, scratching out our, you know, diminishing disposable income year on year, hopefully we'll have a great product. Because I think that was the great criticism. Uh, wouldn't you say, Dow, that the Blue Jays and being frugal were disrespecting the fans, whereas they were simply playing within the context of the times to try to build a team without making decisions like signing players on the wrong side of 30 or let's say giving them a six years or you know 30 million dollar deal to stay here if you know what i'm referring to yeah no i i mean i i think the blue jays ownership is and i think especially with the blue jays ownership is going to be uh sort of an easy punching bag for for people uh and you know i i, I but i do think that uh, the way that they're going about it, um, you know, I, I think that this year I, I have a little more uh, appreciation for what they're doing. Uh, I, I don't think that they necessarily did a great job last off season, and 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 that may have put them a little bit behind the eight ball for uh, for a couple of years. Uh, and the other thing too, frankly, is that we're paying the rent for the the 2015, 2016 seasons. And, and, uh, you know, uh, it's not just a matter of the prospect capital that went out the door in order to bring in some of the, uh, the veterans, but the contracts that they're carrying and the, the, uh, the space on the payroll that that occupies and, and potentially keeps the Blue Jays out of discussions for, uh, certain players. So, um, you know, I, I, I think that, uh, that it is true that, uh, that ownership here, you know, they've, they've raised ticket prices the last couple of years. Uh, they also though, I, I think that the payroll is at a pretty, uh, a pretty healthy spot at this point. Um, you'd always like to see it go a little bit higher and I, suspect that there might even be a little more money in the payroll than we understand at this point, uh, just based on, on some of the discussions around some trades where it was thought that they might be taking money back. But, uh, you know, I, 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 I'm sure that, that there are many, if not most fans are going to, to be annoyed with the way that the, uh, ownership group has, um, has, maybe not done enough for them uh, this off season or maybe in the last couple, but uh, I, I guess I don't find myself amongst them, but maybe I'm just a little too, uh, a little too easy to please at this point. Yeah. And for me, I often think that uh, maybe I'm giving myself too much credit, but I, I like to think that I know a little bit about the team and the system and the history and, to me, I, I think they've done a really good job of navigating where they're at um, in terms of its franchise trajectory. You've got you've got some really elite talent in the lower minor league system that, in a few years, um, could be significant impact players. So to go out and you know spend a huge amount of money on a U Darvish or a JD Martinez could really handicap that next era uh, where the team you know looks like it's going to be a real, real contender in the American league, but they also have a, a talented roster as it is now. So they didn't want to just phone it in. And, and as they've talked about, they wanted to respect what the fans did last year by leading the American league in attendance. So as much as we would have maybe liked to have seen a few other impact moves, I think they did a good job of addressing the needs that they had entering the off season. And uh, if you really look at, 
you know, what Diaz, Solarte, uh, Grichuk, Granderson, Garcia, what those names add up to, I, I think it will be a really positive um, influence on the season coming up. And the fans will, you know, if it goes the way that I think it will, fans will start to really appreciate the work that was done this offseason. The prospect of being surprised by these players who all have something to prove is infinitely more refreshing than signing a player like a Kendris Morales who let us down. So even ironically enough, Kendris Morales will have a lot to prove because I'm under the th- I'm holding fast to the theory that if he doesn't hit for the first month or two of the season, they'll just drop him, drop him like the dead weight that he's become, unfortunately. So hopefully by having all these different acquisitions in the mix and you know, you're right, Chris. It, it it could have been bigger splashes. There's no question. Especially imagine if a if a Kane had ended up here, or if they would have made a play and gotten, you know, an, an Alex Cobb, as I know you personally were hoping for. But that didn't happen. So we're left with something that we we hope will give us a lot of reasons to share good tidings rather than sit here and scratch our heads and and drink excessively. So. I want to take this moment to do the shameless plug time for both of you. Let's start with you, Dow. Talk to me about some of the things you're working on and how my audience can follow you. Uh, Still plugging away on uh, sportsnet.ca. I wrote something uh, this past Friday um, with uh, sort of situating the fans in between the the players and the owners uh, through this offseason. So that uh, should be up somewhere on the site and you can probably just do a quick search once you're there and otherwise it's uh dow seed on uh twitter that's uh where i spend far too much of my time uh sounding things out maybe uh <laughs> when i should just keep them to myself <laughs> yes and you can find my work at uh com as well as the other great writers that we have that work at the websites um, I think I mentioned a few other pieces that uh, a few of the pieces that I published in the last few days, and uh, just going to be looking at the upcoming season and, and maybe some of those spring battles um, in a piece that I'm working on at the moment. Um, and also, you can find uh, myself on Twitter at uh, Baseball for Brains, and that's baseball and the number four and then brains. Lovely gentlemen, I appreciate your time this Sunday afternoon. You have been listening to Dow of Steeb of Sportsnet. And Chris Henderson of our own Jay's Journal. Gentlemen, thank you for joining the show. Thanks, Ari. Always a pleasure, gentlemen. You know, I'm always thrilled to have our good friends at the Collegiate Baseball Scouting Network drop in to talk about the latest and greatest Blue Jays prospects across all levels of their farm system. And, of course, I'm referring to Richard Burfer and Dan Sagan, who do such a fantastic job delivering the latest scuttlebutt and analysis that will help you, the fan, appreciate exactly what this player is going to measure up and be. And nobody seems to know that better these days than these two gentlemen. Boys, take it away. Hi, Ari. Thanks for having us on board another Jays Journal podcast. Always love talking baseball with you. Uh, what we're going to do today is talk about a few lesser-known Jays prospects uh, in the sense that they're not Vladdy and they're not Bo Bichette. Um, today we're going to be talking about pitchers specifically, guys who could eventually make it onto the Jays as uh, rotation pieces. So, Sean Reed Foley and John Harris. Uh, firstly, with Sean Reed Foley, he's a guy who has been, who has been a big name in the Jays farm system for quite some time, um, especially a couple years ago before the emergence of Vladdy and Bo and even Zoik and Pearson, and former second-round pick, a guy who really has had great stuff, but over the past year and a bit 
Um, things have kind of taken a turn for the worst, but the Jays still really like this guy, and they still think that this guy, once he puts everything together, could be a piece for them in the future. Yeah, Reed Foley was taken in the second round in 2014. He got a $750,000 signing bonus, which is good for the second round. He mm. had committed to Florida State, so they wanted to you know, take him away from that commitment and have him playing pro ball. And uh, his first few years, his first year and a half, were a little bit disappointing. He had a high ERA, lots of strikeouts, but also lots of walks. Mm. But uh, he was really starting to piece it together, or so it seemed, <laughs> in 2016. You know, he had a really good season overall, low ERA, high strikeouts, low walks. Mm -hmm. But then in 2017, it, uh, you know, kind of reverted back to his early stages with, you know, high ERA, bad year overall, and that was in double A. It it seemed like the Jays maybe rushed him a little bit in 2017, promoting him to double A. He probably could have spent at least a little more time in single A. But um, I I, I think that he'll probably start off again in double A. Mm -hmm. But yeah. uh, let's see if he pieces things together. Yeah, uh, like uh, like you said, the big thing with um, with uh, Sean Reed Foley is the strikeouts. Um, his fastball assists 92-95, can touch 97. That's his big put-away pitch. That's the one that induces swing and misses, gets the weak contact. Back in 2015, his uh, K per 9 was 11.9. And two years later, it went down to 8.3. And that's a big concern for a guy who really relies on his fastball. That's his best pitch. But really, right now, what he has going for him is he has a plus changeup, he has a plus curveball, plus slider. He has the stuff to really be a good um, starter on the next level. Uh, the Jays love his competitiveness, love love his mound presence. He's a physical kid, and really, once he puts everything together, he's that guy who might really step into their rotation in the future. Um, as far as John Harris, though, he is a bit on the other side of uh, the pedestal. Um, First overall pick back in 2015 out of Missouri State. Uh, he was an ace back then. He uh, tried to take them all the way to Omaha for the College World Series. And really, this is a guy who hasn't really worked out as planned. Um, tall, lanky pitcher, only 175 pounds. Uh, doesn't really have the explosive stuff that Sean Reed Foley has. Uh, fastball sits at around nine, low 90. Um, doesn't really have that m- much uh, secondary stuff. He he does throw a cutter, but the changeup and the curveball is kind of average at the moment. Um, really, this is the guy who the Jays were really hoping for more from, and at this point, it's just not looking good. Yeah, so Harris was a guy that, uh, you know, they thought he was going to be really good. They took him, you know, in the first round, 29th overall, and signed him to a high bonus. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, he's just being a little bit disappointing, like you said. Mm. He's 24 right now, so the clock's ticking a little bit. And, uh, yeah, he's uh, let's, see, uh, let's see if he piece things mm. together. Exactly. Um, really, uh, they have another year right now to really prove themselves. Both of them need big bounce-back years after both suffering a pretty down year at uh, New Hampshire. So all that's left to do is wait, wait and see how it goes and... Hopefully one of them separates themselves from the pack. Anyways, thanks again for having us on another uh, podcast, and we'll talk to you soon. Thanks, Ari.